As Jasmine mentioned, this morning we're continuing in our Who Do You Say I Am series. Uh, and in Matthew 16, Jesus asks his disciples this piercing question, Who do you say I am? And it's an important question for all of us to answer as followers of Jesus. And we're going to be using the message of this series to reflect and explore who Jesus is. And the goal is that by the end of this series, each of us can answer with conviction who we each say Jesus is, who the Bible says Jesus is. And so over the course of the next two weeks, we're going to be looking at that question through the lens of some of the lesser known books of the Old Testament, Malachi and Haggai. Uh, today is Malachi. Next week will be Haggai. Alicia will bring a message on the book of Haggai. And then that'll set us up nicely for a message from Marcy on the 400-year period between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And the goal of these messages within the series is that we get into the mindset of God's people during the period before Jesus actually came, get a sense of what they were going through, get a sense of who they were told the Messiah was going to be and what he was going to be like and what he was going to do. And last week at the retreat, we looked at who the Messiah was promised to be in the book of Isaiah. We saw the context of that promise. God was angry with his people because of their rebellion, and so he punished them, used their enemies to conquer them, sent them into exile, and the Messiah was promised to be someone who would not only restore their fortunes and reverse their circumstances, but fix their biggest problem, their sin and rebellion, by taking on God's wrath and suffering in the place of God's people. And we also saw that on our own, we're all lost sheep who've all gone astray, and the Messiah was promised to come and rescue us and bring us back. And so that's where we've been so far. We'll read the scripture for today, and then I'll pray, and then we can dive into this week. And the scripture from today comes from Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6, the last two verses of Malachi. So the last two verses before, Jesus, before God is silent for 400 years. He says, look, I am going to send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Otherwise, I will come and strike the land with a curse. Let's pray. Father, we want to know who you are. We want to see who you promised the Messiah would be. We want to understand what you came to do, King Jesus, to open our eyes, open our hearts, to hear your words to us. Let us experience your presence Jesus' name. Amen. So today, we're looking at the book of Malachi, and unlike the book of Isaiah, Malachi is one of the more obscure books of the Bible. And I feel like a lot of us only recognize it because it's just before the New Testament. Like, people are trying to get to Matthew, and they accidentally stumble on Malachi, and they're like, oh, I never knew that was there, and then they just keep moving right along. It's kind of like LMCC having a great name for SEO, and so everybody finds us off of Google. That's kind of what I hear everybody saying, how they find us. And one way that I like to test how obscure a book of the Bible is, is see how many people you know with that name. So Daniel, you know, everybody has a few friends named Daniel. I think at one point we had two in our community group. Um, Esther, we have an Esther who sings on stage. There's a Ruth at this church. I know a lot of Joshua's, even Micah. But Malachi, 
Does anybody know anybody named Malachi? Oh, I see some hands raised. I, so, so I didn't until three years ago when my best friend from college named his kid Malachi. And like black people can get away with stuff like that, but my friend is Wonder Bread. And so he's like walking around with this kid named Malachi and it's awesome. Anyway, that's Malachi. It's a very obscure book of the Bible. And it is one we should all be familiar with because it contains lots of promises of the Messiah. And it's the last of the prophecies before Jesus arrives. Because after Malachi, God is silent for 400 years. And then Jesus. And so if God's last word before Jesus was in Malachi, it'd be good to know what he said. Might have some clues for us in terms of what to look for in the Messiah. So three sections to this morning's message. First, the context of God's people in Malachi. Second, the promises of the Messiah in Malachi. And third, how it all fits together. So first, the context of God's people in Malachi. Second, the promises of the Messiah in Malachi. And third, how it all fits together. So first, um, the context. So last week when we were in Isaiah, we talked about how Isaiah was telling God's people what would happen as a result of their rebellion, how they would be conquered and scattered and exiled. And you fast forward to Malachi, and this has already happened. Just a quick recap, right? The people of God have gotten to the promised land. They have kings. The kings are really hit or miss, mostly miss when it comes to following God's laws. And so God sends prophets to let them know that they've been messing up. Prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah come and tell God's people the bad things that are going to happen in terms of their enemies conquering them. And this eventually happens. They are conquered. They are scattered. They are exiled. And so when we're in Malachi, this is the context. And there's some clues in Malachi that tell us it takes place during the Persian Empire after the Persian Emperor has allowed God's people to return to Jerusalem and rebuild God's temple. And Alicia's going to talk more about that next week. But the main thing here is that the bad things that God said were going to happen as a result of his people's rebellion have now happened. But God has shown them some mercy. He's allowed them to return to their city to rebuild his temple. And from what we can gather, God's people were not forced to worship Persian gods under the Persian Empire they were allowed to continue their own customs and worship their God, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But what we see in Malachi is they're really half-hearted about it. And I wanted to use a different word there, but it's not appropriate for church, but they're half-hearted. <laughs> they're half-hearted about worshiping God. Check out Malachi 1, verses 11 and 12, where it says, My name will be great among the nations, this is God speaking, from the rising of the sun to its setting, Incense and pure offerings will be presented in my name in every place because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of armies. But you are profaning it when you say the Lord's table is defiled and its product, its food is contemptible. You also say, look, what a nuisance. And you scorn it, says the Lord of armies. You bring stolen, lame, or sick animals. You bring this as an offering. Am I to accept that from your hands? asks the Lord. Now the judgmental side of me is like, are you kidding me? How is this possible? How is it possible that God has tried to get the attention of his people by bringing on them the worst possible calamities, humiliating them, bringing the worst shame on their nation, and then he gives them a chance at worshiping him again. He throws them a bone, and their response is kind of, meh. They kind of shrug. Their response is annoyed. They say this is a nuisance. 
their responses, bringing their dregs and their scraps, not the good stuff, not their best, but their leftovers. How is this possible? Then I look at myself, a lot of different seasons in my life when God has brought difficulty to get my attention. And then he's like, okay, can I have your best now? And I get defensive. God, can't you see I'm trying? We're no different than God's people in the time of Malachi. We don't give our absolute best. We're not fully committed. We're going through the motions. We're half-hearted. And in Malachi, the context is of people who are half-hearted in the ways they're following God. Their sacrifices are literally lame. They withhold offerings instead of contributing to God's work. They think they're doing right by following the letter of God's commands, but they ignore the spirit behind it. They distort the truth. They distort morality. They say, it says they make God weary by saying people who do evil are good in God's sight and that God is delighted with them. It says they speak harshly against God, saying it's pointless to follow him. It says they think of the arrogant and godless as better off. It says they envy the godless because those people are more prosperous and don't seem to have the same difficulties that they do. They're just half-hearted. You know, some of their observations aren't wrong. It's hard not to be half-hearted when serving God comes with trial and difficulty and despair. It's hard not to be half-hearted when it seems like those who don't care about God are better off. It's really hard. It's really hard not to go through the motions. And I can confess, I can relate. Literally up until the retreat last week, I was in a season of going through the motions. Felt like I was in a bit of a wilderness. Didn't have a lot of wins to celebrate. And that's a real recipe for half-heartedness. Coming to a place of just feeling blah. Going through the motions of praying and reading the Bible and doing the activities of following God, but not really being fully in them. And that's what we find God's people doing in Malachi. That's the context of God's people in Malachi. People who have experienced the worst kind of despair. They've been thrown a bone by God. And they're still just half-hearted in the way they relate to him. And it's to this half-hearted people that Malachi brings another round of promises about the Messiah. In Isaiah, we saw the Messiah was going to reverse their negative circumstances and also provide a path to walking in God's ways. But in Malachi, we see the Messiah from a different angle. Because the promises of the Messiah and Malachi all center around this climactic event called the Day of the Lord. The Day of the Lord. The Day of the Lord is referred to all throughout Scripture. The Old Testament and the New Testament. And in Scripture, in the Scripture we just heard from Malachi 4, it's referred to as a great and terrible day. A great day and a terrible day. How's the same event, both great and terrible? Well, scripture says a lot of things are going to happen then, which we can put into three buckets. There's going to be a reckoning, a refining, and renewal. A reckoning, a refining, and a renewal. And the first thing, the reckoning, is pretty much all terrible. The second thing, the refining, is a mix of terrible and great. And the third thing, the renewal, is all great. 
So we'll take them one at a time, the reckoning, then the refining, and then the renewal. First, the reckoning. The day of the Lord is going to be terrible because there's going to be a reckoning. We saw it first described in Isaiah 2. The haughty looks of men shall be brought low, and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. Here's another description of it from Zephaniah. The great day of the Lord is near, near and coming quickly. The cry on the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty warrior shouts his battle cry. That day will be a day of wrath, a day of distress and anguish, a day of trouble and ruin, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness, a day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the corner towers. And then back to Malachi chapter 3, I will come to you in judgment and I will be ready to witness against sorcerers and adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker, the widow, and the fatherless, and against those who deny justice to the resident alien. So we can see why it's going to be a terrible day. It's going to be a day of judgment. A day when all the proud and arrogant, all the godless, all those stuck in rebellion are made to fully feel God's wrath. It's not pretty. This is as hellfire and brimstone as it gets. That's the reckoning of the day of the Lord. That's the reckoning that makes the day of the Lord a terrible day. Malachi also says the day of the Lord is going to be a great day. And that's because of the refining and the renewal that happens. And the refining is referenced in Malachi 3 where it says, But who can endure the day of his coming and who will be able to stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire and like launderer's bleach. So first of all, that, that doesn't sound great. It sounds like more of the terrible part. Fire and bleach sounds painful, and it's going to be. It says, who can stand it? Who can endure it? It doesn't sound like something we should be excited about. But then it goes on to say, he will be like a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. Then they will present offerings to the Lord in righteousness. He will purify them. He will refine them like gold and silver. And then they will present offerings to the Lord in righteousness. The thing that makes the coming of the Messiah great, the thing that makes the day of the Lord great, the thing that makes it a great day is that when the day of the Lord comes, when the Messiah comes, he's going to do whatever it takes, whatever needs to be done to purify his people, to refine them, to make them righteous. He's going to actively drive his people to righteousness, which shows, which will show what it means to be fully committed and no longer half-hearted. But make no mistake, that's a painful process. In our community group, we used to have this phrase, sunbathe in the refiner's fire. And we'd use it whenever we were experiencing some difficulty that we knew God was using to refine us, make us more like him, strip away all the things that he didn't want us focused on, turn our attention back toward him. And that wording was intentional sunbathe in the refiner's fire, a positive vacation-like experience. But let's be real. When you're actually in the refiner's fire, it's not sunbathing. It sucks. There's no spiritual FPF 10,000 sunblock that makes it fun. Doesn't feel good. But when you're going through it, can at least hold on to the promise that at the end of it, 
you'll find you've been completely remade and recast in the image of God. You'll find you've been completely transformed. You'll find you look in the mirror and what was once a hunk of coal is a diamond. It won't be you who did it. For yourself, it'll be the Messiah who did it. What will that look like? Maybe something like the new covenant Phil spoke about a few weeks ago, just promised in Jeremiah 31, where it says, instead, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my teaching within them and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people for I will forgive their iniquity and never again remember their sin. The Messiah's refining comes as a result of God placing a new spirit, his own spirit within his people. And with his spirit, God's people would no longer be half-hearted about pursuing him. They'd have a real fire within them, his spirit, to pursue him and his kingdom wholeheartedly. That's the second thing that happens on the day of the Lord, that refining, that purifying of God's people. And the third thing that happens on the day of the Lord, third thing that happens when the Messiah comes is renewal and restoration. Malachi 3, it says, And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will please the Lord as in days of old and years gone by. Then it says, They will be mine, says the Lord of armies, my own possession on the day I am preparing. I will have compassion on them as a man has compassion on his son who serves him. So you will again see the difference between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. And finally, the verses from earlier, I'm going to send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. At the beginning of Malachi, we see God talking about how offended he is by the really lame gifts his people are bringing. We see them going through the motions. It looks like they're doing something, but they're really not. They're giving him their scraps. They think it's a nuisance to follow God. They think the arrogant and selfish are better off. They treat each other terribly. They treat their neighbors and the less fortunate, the widows, orphans, and foreigners terribly. And here we see that when the day of the Lord comes, there's restoration and renewal. There's restoration and renewal to the moral order of the world. God's people are no longer indistinguishable from godless people. They're different and they're good and they're able to recognize good and call it good. They're able to recognize evil and call it evil. There's restoration and renewal in relationships among people. God's people are loving towards their family and neighbors. God's people are the ones that care for the less fortunate. There's restoration and renewal in the relationship between God and his people. And this goes in both directions. God's people now are all in. They now give gifts that please him. They're giving him their best. They're following him wholeheartedly. And God cherishes them again, calls them his own possession. He looks at them as his treasure again. It's those verses that Esther read from Revelation. There's no more death. God is dwelling with his people. That's what the great and terrible day of the Lord looks like according to Malachi. It's great and it's terrible. Terrible because of the reckoning where all the proud and arrogant and godless face judgment. Terrible because of the painful refining for God's people, but great 
Because that painful refining will change God's people from a half-hearted people to a fully committed people. Great because of the restoration and renewal of moral order, of relationships among people, and of the relationship between God and his people. So before I jump into the last section, I just want to pause there. Because the day of the Lord is a really challenging idea. It's not as straightforward as the promises that we see in Isaiah And the promises about the Messiah that we see in Isaiah are much more familiar to us. We easily make the connection between the suffering servant and the Jesus of the Gospels. But the day of the Lord is a little bit different. And the main reason it's different is because a lot of this day of the Lord stuff that I just talked about hasn't happened yet. We look around and we don't see a world that's experienced complete restoration and renewal. We don't see a world where the proud and arrogant are brought to heal. They do seem better off. We don't see a world where the moral order makes sense. We look inside ourselves and we don't see people who are completely committed. So what gives? Does the Messiah come or are we still looking for him to come? I like the phrase Alicia used in one of her sermons last year, already, not yet. It's a dynamic we see all throughout scripture, this already, not yet dynamic. God's work of renewal and restoration has already begun, but it's not yet complete. The reason we see this dynamic is because the Messiah has already come, but the Messiah is still to come. The events we talked about, the reckoning, the refining, the renewal, It would all start with his first coming. They won't be complete until the second coming of the Messiah. So here's how it all fits together. It's a process with steps that happen one after another. There's an order of operations to this plan of salvation that God has. First, there are the promises from Isaiah, then the promises from Malachi. Step one, the Messiah removes our sin by taking our place and enduring God's wrath. Step two, Once sin is removed, God gives his spirit to refine us, purify us, make us good. Step two cannot happen before step one because God is holy. He will not and cannot do step two until he's done step one. He will not give his spirit until he's removed our sin. So you have step one, remove sin. Step two, give his spirit. And then step three, wait. God waits on us. We wait on him. And this is New York City, so we hate this step. But it's an important one because the waiting is when the refining happens. The waiting is when he purifies us to be less half-hearted and more fully committed. The waiting is also a demonstration of God's mercy because he's holding off on the next step out of patience and mercy. He's holding off on the next step so more people can turn to him and stop being half-hearted. Because the next step, step four, is the day of the Lord. The reckoning and the judgment followed by the complete renewal and restoration. Peter sums it up well in 2 Peter 3. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And then C.S. Lewis elaborates on this idea further in Mere Christianity. God will invade, but I wonder whether people who ask God to do so quite realize what it will be like when he does. When that happens, it is the end of the world. 
When the author walks on the stage, the play is over. God is going to invade all right, but what is the good of saying you are on his side then when you see the whole natural universe melting away like a dream and something else, something it never entered your head to conceive comes crashing in? Something so beautiful to some of us and so terrible to others that none of us will have any choice left. For this time, it will be God without disguise. Something so overwhelming that it will strike either irresistible love or irresistible horror into every creature. It will be too late then to choose your side. There's no use saying you choose to lie down when it has become impossible to stand up. That will not be the time for choosing. It will be the time when we discover which side we really have chosen, whether we realized it before or not. Now, today, this moment is our chance to choose the right side. God is holding back to give us that chance. It will not last forever. We must take it or leave it. That's the promise of the Messiah in Malachi, God's eventual invasion. The author eventually taking the stage to announce the end of the story and all of creation bowing before the Lord of all. And for a half-hearted people, like God's people in Malachi, for a half-hearted people like us, that's exactly the message we need. It's a wake-up call. A wake-up call to look for the one who can help us stop being half-hearted. A wake-up call to look for the one who will allow us to exchange our hearts of stone for hearts of flesh. A wake-up call to look for the one who will allow us to receive God's spirit. A wake-up call that we don't want to miss him. Because if we do, we'll end up on the wrong side of the reckoning when it comes. A wake-up call that what the Messiah offers will be worth it in the end on that great day of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we don't want to miss you. We don't want to miss what you're doing, what you offer, what you offer to do in us, and what you'll eventually do in this world. We're a half-hearted people often, Lord Jesus. So we ask that your spirit guide us, teach us, lead us into the truth, ignite a fire in us to seek your kingdom fully with all of our hearts, to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, which we can only do through Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.